Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, being a member of a church is not always easy. Uh, It can be a great blessing, but it can also be a struggle at times. Uh, One Scotsman perhaps put it best when he doodled this poem during a sermon as he sat in the midst of his church members, and he wrote this, he said, to dwell above with saints in love, aye, that will be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, now that's a different story. And uh, some of you have read a few chapters of that different story uh, throughout your life in the church. And if you haven't yet, I assure you that at some point you will have read some of those chapters. And this can discourage us and tempt us to uh, leave the church. Yes, the church itself and the members within can tempt us to leave the church. In fact, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, the senior demon, Screwtape, is mentoring his nephew, Wormwood, a junior tempter. And uh, the uncle's mentorship pertains to the nephew's responsibility in securing the damnation of a British man known only as the patient. And in one letter that he writes to his nephew, he expresses his disappointment in his nephew that the patient has become a Christian. But he writes to his nephew, there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. And that's our struggle, isn't it? This side of heaven, we walk by faith and not by sight. And this side of heaven, the visible church, is always going to be a mixture of wheat and tares, true believers and hypocrites. And even the true believers still have a a sin nature, yourself included. And so there is no perfect church this side of heaven. And as the saying goes, if you ever find one, don't join it because you'll ruin it. (laughs) But being a member of a church is not always easy. And yet we can't escape the clear teaching of the Bible that Christ loves the church and died for her to make her His bride. And if Christ so loves the church, we too should love the church. And according to God's Word, we are all duty-bound to join and unite with the visible church, to become members of a local church. We're to gather with the local church for worship. We're to submit to her overseers. We are to serve her members with our gifts. In other words, we're to put into practice what we believe and confess based on God's Word, namely that we believe the communion of the saints. We're to practice that. And we see that here in God's Word from Galatians 6. Once again, it reads in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So let's consider this uh, verse and meditate on what it means for us as 
Christians today as members of this church. Uh, and so we'll consider the theme, the household of faith, and then ask three questions here. First, what is the household of faith? And then secondly, how should we treat those in the household of faith? And then third, how can we overcome weariness? But first, what is the household of faith? Well, the household of faith is the visible church made up of all those throughout the world and throughout history who profess faith in Christ and their children. And this phrase communicates that we are like a family. We are a community of brothers and sisters in Christ who dwell under one roof. And we are bound to one another, not only as housemates, but we are bound to one another with a common family name, right? Usually a household is attached to a family name. We are the household of Christ. We all bear the name Christian because Christ is our one Savior and Lord. He's our one elder brother. And God the Father is our one Father in heaven. And we all share one Holy Spirit who dwells within each of us. This is who we are, members of the household of faith, a family of believers. And we need one another in the body of Christ. Those those who separate from the church live contrary to God's clear, revealed will in His Word and put themselves in grave spiritual danger. Uh, The story is told that uh, the evangelist Dwight Lyman Moody in the 1800s, he was an American evangelist, um, and he was visiting a, a prominent Chicago citizen when the idea of church membership and involvement came up. And this church member who hardly ever came to church and was never involved said to Moody, I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside of it. And Moody said nothing. Instead, he moved to the fireplace, which was blazing against the winter outside, and he removed one burning coal from the fire, and he placed it on the hearth all by itself. And the two men sat together and watched the ember die out. And the man eventually said, I see, Pastor, I'll be there next week. Powerful illustration, right? And there's truth to it. It's it's true. It's based on God's word that to depart from the visible church, you're in grave spiritual danger, living contrary to God's revealed will, his wisdom for his people, revealed in his word. But that's the point that this man got: that if you are isolated from the body of Christ, you're in grave spiritual danger. In 251 AD, one of the early church leaders. A man by the name of Cyprian wrote this. He said, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church as your mother. If you could escape outside Noah's Ark, you could escape outside the church. And I'm sure that at times the Ark, you know, if you think about it, the Ark was pretty stinky, pretty miserable at times for Noah and his family. Can you imagine how bad it got from all the animals? And it was probably hot and humid at times during the day and cold at night, and it may have been rocky waters at times, 
But do you think Noah and his family ever thought to escape the ark? No, instead they would have probably been thinking, you know, this, this ark's pretty miserable at times, but there's no place I'd rather be in this world than right here in this ark. And eventually they were brought safely to dry ground where they entered a new creation. And so too, even as we persevere with one another in the church, trusting in Christ alone for salvation, we will one day pass through the final judgment and arrive safely in the new creation and the new heavens and new earth. It may be miserable at times, but there's no place we'd rather be in this world than inside the church, a member of the household of faith. And as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will see the importance of community in general and the visible covenant community in particular. Think about how God created man in his own image and said, let us, let us make man in our own image. You see, God himself, he's not a solitary monad. God is one in essence and three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit dwell in perfect community with one another. And as those who are created in the image of the triune God, we too are to, cre- we too are to reflect the glory of our triune God and dwell in community with others. That's why God created man in his image, male and female. And in Genesis 2, God says that something is not good there, right? And what is it that's not good? That the man should be alone. It's not good to be alone. And so God created the woman as a helper and companion for man. And we see the importance of the community of believers in the Old Testament, not only just community in general, but also in particular the importance of the visible covenant community of believers in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel who are called the people of God, not the persons of God. You can search your Old Testament and you'll never read about the persons of God, but you will read all about the people of God, a visible community of believers who have faith in God's covenant promises made to Abraham. And the primary Old Testament word for the church is kahal, which means the assembly. You can't have an assembly of one person. An assembly is when a community gathers together. And when we come to the New Testament, we continue to see that the community of believers is very important. The church is a communion, a fellowship of saints. And did you know that the word saint in the New Testament is always in the plural, except in one place, Philippians 4.21, where Paul says, greet every saint. So even there, he's thinking of saints in plural terms. And we can see the importance of the visible church in the metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe the church. I mean, the whole New Testament, most of it is letters to visible churches with real flesh and blood people and office bearers and tangible means of grace in the sacraments. But we see these metaphors of the, of the church, that the church is the body of Christ. This highlights the importance of the church, the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we are the members. And what happens, you know, when children, what happens if, you know, a piece of your body is separated, if your finger is separated from your body? Is that good for your finger? No, <laughs> right? 
Your finger needs to be attached to your body. It's not good to be separated from the body of Christ. The church is also called the temple of God. And we are living stones in that temple, as it were. And, you know, what happens when a brick of a beautiful building is separated from the building? You know, maybe you go to Europe and you see some of these beautiful uh, cathedrals, you know, but maybe just one of the bricks just kind of fell off and is off to the side somewhere. People aren't going and taking pictures of that brick, are they? (laughs) They're taking pictures of the building, right? This is sort of a useless brick now, like off to the side. Uh, Or you think of Legos. Who here likes to play with Legos? (laughs) Right? I mean, a Lego brick by itself isn't much, right? But when you put them all together, it can form beautiful structures. You can make the Colosseum with a bunch of Legos. You can make a a beautiful, I went to Legoland once and just saw these beautiful skylines, right? You can see they did Toronto, they did New York, they did Paris, and uh, all these amazing, just all Legos, Massive, right? You take one of those bricks out of there, it's just sort of pointless, right? We are meant to be bound together. And the church is not only the temple of God and the body of Christ, it's also the flock of Jesus. He's the good shepherd and we are the sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, they're not intelligent animals, right? They need to be a part of the flock with their shepherd. What happens when a sheep wanders astray? probably going to die, right? They can't survive on their own. They're going to walk off a cliff or they're going to starve or a predator is going to eat them. Sheep are meant to be together in a flock, and we are the one flock of Jesus Christ. He is our good shepherd. That's why the good shepherd goes after the sheep and brings the sheep back to the sheepfold. And here Paul says that the church is the household of faith, a family of believers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ with the same family name. Christian. And there's plenty more metaphors which highlight the importance of the visible church, but the point is this. God never intended for Christians to be individualistic or isolated from each other. Those whom God effectually calls, He unites them with Christ and the body of Christ, the church. Through faith in Christ and by the Spirit, we have union and communion with Christ and each other. And this is how we're to dwell. We're to dwell together in the body of Christ. This is such a hard point to, to persuade people of in our day and age. We live in a consumeristic day and age. We live in an individualistic day and age. We're radically individualistic. And as a pastor, it's been one of the hardest things for me to convince some people that they should join a church. They should become members of a church. But we see this all over the Scriptures. The church is a community of believers united with Christ and each other. And when the Word of Christ is dwelling richly in a church and the Spirit is filling it more and more, it looks like a family of believers who love and serve one another. We see this especially in Acts 2. Following Peter's sermon on Pentecost Sunday and right after Christ poured out His Spirit on the church, what was the effect? We read in Acts 2, Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were gathering together to worship, and and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together together. 
and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that a beautiful description of the church? And isn't that what you long for? Isn't that what we all long for? That's the kind of community that we should be striving for. And so do you confess the communion of saints? I know you just sang it because you confessed it, and that's good, but do you practice the communion of saints? It's one thing to confess it. It's another thing to practice it. Do you treat Grace Canadian Reformed Church as your church family? That this is not so much a place that you come to with your family, but that you come to to meet family, your eternal family in Christ. Do you treat grace as a household of faith or only as a herald of faith? Sort of like a preaching station where you get filled up and then leave without giving a second thought to your brothers and sisters in Christ after the service or at all throughout the week. The most important thing about you is not your biological family or your last name or your job or your hobbies and interests or your possessions or your ethnicity. As important as those things are, the most important thing about you is that you are a Christian and you belong to Christ and are a member of the household of faith. And these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, your eternal family. Let us not just confess that. Let us practice that. And these things are true especially at the local level, but it's also true at the broader level. The church is our family wherever she is truly found, evidencing the marks of a true church, whether it's in India or Iran or Brazil or Korea or Sudan or Ukraine or Russia or Egypt or Mexico or the U.S. or any other country around the world. And so that's what the household of faith is and why it's so important for every Christian to be a part of it. But then, next we should ask, how should we treat those in the household of faith? How should we treat church family? Well, Paul says in verse 10, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So according to this, you and I are to do good to all kinds of people, really everyone, both inside and outside of the church. However, Paul places a special emphasis on those who are of the household of faith, which means you and I have a special responsibility to care for other Christians in the church, and especially the church where each of us are members. Uh, one commentator writes on this, Christians, therefore, are particularly bound to do good to one another. Every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity, and if I can afford it, for active exertion and financial relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother equally interested with myself in the blood and love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with Him in heaven. 
He is the representative of my unseen Savior. And he considers everything done to his poor, afflicted brother as done to himself. For a Christian to be unkind to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. And this is why Jesus said to his sheep in in Matthew 25, on that final judgment day, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And it says, then he will answer the goat saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the Lord considers it that when we love one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, that we're loving Him. It's being done unto Him. Yes, sometimes it's difficult to love one another in the body of Christ, but we do it unto the Lord out of reverence for the Lord, remembering what He has first done for us and laying down His life for us to save us. And so we are to do good to all people, but we are to focus our acts of kindness and goodness on the church. Our church family ought to have the priority in our hearts. Our church family ought to have first claim on our resources, on our time, and on our energy. Do good to all, yes, but especially those who bear the name of Christ and are our brother or sister in Christ. And so we're to do good particularly to the church. But how does this look to do good to the household of faith? Well, Paul doesn't really specify it here, does he? But we can just search the Bible to learn what that looks like. And we especially think of all the one another passages in the New Testament that help us learn what it means to do good to the household of faith. And there's all kinds of positive commands in the New Testament of what it looks like to love one another. Of course, it says love one another. Uh, This command occurs at least 16 times in the New Testament. It says, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, speak the truth in love to one another, be patient with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. I'll just stop there. That's enough to keep you busy until Christ returns, right? I mean, there's so many one another passages. Hopefully you heard some in there where you maybe are falling short where you could love somebody in that way. It's always interesting, too, to think about, you know, the kinds of one another passages that aren't in the Bible, Right? Be rude to one another. Look down on one another. Gossip about one another. Right? And there's so many other things that aren't in the Bible that's worth thinking about as well. But all those one another's are what we're called to, to do good to one another, especially in the household of faith. 
And we're to do all this because we are, in a real sense, members of one another, as Paul says in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. We are members of the body, and our, our, we need one another. We need one another. The hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the mouth, I don't need you, and vice versa. We need one another. There's this interdependence between the members of the body of Christ. And so how are you treating Christ these days in the way that you treat the church? Are you indifferent to the needs of Christ's body? Or are you caring for Christ's body and seeking not your own interest, but the interest of the other members? You see, it's not enough to just not do mean things to one another. It is also our holy calling to be proactive about doing good to one another as members of the household of faith. We're to look to the interests of others in the church and to love and serve members with our gifts. As Paul says in Philippians 2, pointing us to Christ, our supreme example, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so Christ is our supreme example, who thought not only of himself, but his great concern was what is it that I can do in order to do good to those who are of the household of faith? Is that your concern? It's a countercultural attitude, isn't it? We live in a society that tells us to look out for ourselves first and foremost, to think about what you can get out of an organization or a club for the benefit that it brings you. It's a consumeristic society where the customer is always right, and you can have it your way. But in the church, it's to be different. The church is the one place where you are a member, not for your own good, but for the good of everyone else. As 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, and He died, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, Christ died and rose again to save you, to free you from bondage to self-centeredness, that self-centeredness that we all struggle with. He died so that you could daily ask yourself the question, how can I be a blessing to that brother or that sister in Christ. The church is the household of faith, and as the household of faith, we're to do good to one another. But it's not always easy to do good to others, is it? We can easily get tired and exhausted, and, and that's why I appreciate Paul, that Paul acknowledges the weariness of doing good and helps us to see how we can overcome weariness in doing good here. So how can we overcome weariness well, it's not always easy to love people who at times do nothing for you in return, is it? It's not easy showing kindness to people who may be ungrateful and take advantage of you at times. It's not easy overcoming evil with good when someone hurts you. And we also have a, a tendency to grow weary of doing good due to our own sinfulness and the sinfulness of others or due to difficult circumstances in life 
or due to our impatient desire to see immediate results, or due to our own frailty and weakness physically, and due to the sheer immensity of human need. So Paul exhorts us, though, let us not grow weary of doing good, but he acknowledges that we can easily grow weary. What then can we do to keep from growing weary? Well, here's just several things. Uh, Some are just some practical things, you know, get some rest. Your body can only take so much. Proper sleep and leisure is important, and you need to get rest, good rest. Sometimes you just get tired because you're just go, 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 and not taking care of yourself physically. Another thing that we can do is stop striving in our own strength. Uh, We need the Spirit's strength. Too often we we fail to depend on the Spirit's strength and cry out to Him for the help we need to show good to others. And so pray, pray that the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, would give you the strength to love others when it's difficult. Another thing you can do is depend on one another. Depend on your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you when you are weary and to help you when you need something. So you can ask your brother or sister, I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? I'm getting really tired and I'm trying to do good to the household of faith, but I'm getting weary. And you can also depend on them to help you so that we're not, you know, a one-man show or a one-woman show. We, we depend on one another. Get others involved. Don't just try to do it all yourself. Another thing you can do to keep from growing weary is to meditate deeply upon the gospel. This and prayer are top priority. Are you weary of showing goodness and kindness to others? Remember the gospel. Titus 3 says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Think about that. Think of the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior Jesus Christ and how He saved us from all of our sins, how He worked hard for our salvation, how He died on the cross in our place. And He did it not only to free us from the curse of the law, but also to make us a people who do good to one another, especially those of the household of faith. He goes on and says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Well, finally, what Paul encourages us with in this passage is that we must not grow weary because one day there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. He says in verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so, beloved, the harvest will come. Remind yourself of that. It's not always going to be hard. We're not always going to be living this life under the sun where it's so difficult. You will not be sowing forever. One day you will reap the fruit of your labors in Christ. If not in this life, then surely when Christ returns. And so we must not give up, but keep doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You see, part of the reason we give up so easily is that we live in an instant gratification culture. 
We expect immediate results, but we need to have the mindset of a farmer who waits patiently. William Carey, the great missionary to India, had to wait seven years until he would see the first convert to Christ. He patiently sowed the seeds of the gospel and patiently did good to others, and it was worth the wait. But sometimes we'll have to wait a very, very long time, and sometimes we won't reap in our lifetime, and we'll have to wait until we get to heaven to see that it was all worth it in the end. But an example of having to wait a very long time, this, or an example of this, rather, from church history is uh, the conversion of a man named Luke Short. Uh, so this is a good example of having to wait a very long time or even not seeing in your lifetime uh, the fruit of your labors. But an example is from church history, the conversion of a man named Luke Short. Short was converted to Christ in the late 1600s, get this, at the ripe old age of 103 years old is when he was converted, 103 years old. And uh, Short was sitting under a hedge when he remembered a sermon he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. And as he recalled the sermon, he asked God right then and there to forgive his sins through Jesus Christ. And Short then lived for three more years, and when he died, this inscription was put on his tombstone, "'Here lies a babe in grace aged three years.'" who died according to nature, aged 106. But here's the remarkable part of the story. Uh, The sermon that Short remembered when he was 103 years old had been preached by Flavel back in England 85 years before that. 85 years before that. Nearly a century had passed between the sermon and the conversion, between the sowing and the reaping. You see, as Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't expect the immediate results, but we trust God's Word. And so let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so are you doing good to all, and especially those of the household of faith? Are you practicing the communion of the saints? What do we understand by the communion of the saints? Well, we confess in our catechism first that Believers, all and every one, as members of Christ, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use His gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. So, brothers and sisters, where you have fallen short, confess your sins to God and rest in the complete forgiveness of all your sins in Christ as we confess in question and answer 56. Paul says in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And so if you trust in Christ, you are no longer under the curse of the law, but are under God's grace in Christ. You're blessed to be a blessing to others. And so where are you falling short? Confess your sins and rest in the complete forgiveness of all your sins and walk in gratitude. You are blessed to be a blessing to others. And as those who have received the promised spirit through faith, let, it, let us walk in His strength and not in our own. And may the Spirit produce in us the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in this church. 
and throughout our lives. Yes, it will be difficult at times, but it will all be worth it in the end when Christ returns on the final harvest day and says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.